Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? This morning we will be looking at verses 17 through 24 as we continue to make our way verse by verse through this amazing epistle. Let me read the text to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. <clears throat> now, one of the real blessings of expository preaching verse by verse is you have to preach every verse, even this section of Scripture. And you've probably never heard a sermon preached on this section of Scripture, unless you were here in April of 2000 when I preached on this text. This is one of those passages that is easily overlooked. It seems unimportant, it seems unnecessary, frankly, it seems weird especially in our culture. But dear friends, when it is read and when it is exposited in context, the divine genius begins to emerge. You begin to see things that are marvelous and very practical. May I remind you that the Holy Spirit has not written one single word that is superfluous, that is unnecessary. There are no mindless meanderings in Scripture, as if there are just things that are filler. But rather, every word is the inspired word of the living God, providing supernatural wisdom that can be ours for the taking. And that's what we have here in this text. And frankly, the, ta the task of the preacher is to immerse himself in the depths of the word and not surface from its depths until he grabs hold of the treasures of divine wisdom so that he can then help his flock understand them. And that is certainly my desire this morning. Now, as always, context is key. So let me take you back to the first century. And I find it interesting that sandwiched here between 
the Apostle Paul's instructions concerning marriage in verses 8 through 16 that we've already looked at. And singleness that's going to come following this in verses 25 through 40. We have this section of scripture regarding the issue of contentment. In fact, I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Contentment in Circumstance and Status. Now, Paul desperately wants these immature believers in Corinth to begin to mature in Christ and to begin to enjoy the real, the real blessings of a stable, Christ-like Christianity, not the chaos and the confusion that they were typically plagued with. As you will recall, they were proud, they were factious, they were divisive, they were infatuated with the wisdom of man and all of man's philosophies. They brought that garbage into the church, as we tend to do as well. Their selfishness produced unstable relationships, and their ignorance combined with the influence of an ungodly culture brought a lot of confusion. Confusion about matters of sexual morality that we've discussed in previous times together, about marriage, about celibacy, all of which really can fuel the fires of discontent in a person's life. In fact, discontentment is one of the hallmarks of the human condition. It's a product of our fallen nature. And it certainly was true for the Corinthian believers. You see, like most of us, they were obsessed with bettering themselves by seeking better circumstances or a better status in life. I call it the tyranny of the if-onlys. If only I was married to somebody else. If only I was single. If only I was married. If only I was Jewish. If only I was a Gentile. If only I was a free man rather than a slave. And on it goes from there, as you will see. And we see that this is all real practical for us. I mean, think about it. We say the same types of things. If only I had a different face. If only I had a different body. If only I had different hair or a different family or a different spouse. Then I could be happy, right? If only I had that job or that talent or that wealth or that spiritual gift. If only I had that intellect. If only I had that education. If only I had that boyfriend or girlfriend or that kind of money. Then everything in life would be great. And so we become obsessed with the externals of life. Change becomes the life-dominating quest. We're never satisfied we're never content to serve God where we are as who he has made us to be. And this relentless preoccupation then eclipses the most important issue in life. And that is walking faithfully with Christ, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our status. So Paul is essentially saying here, we need to bloom where we're planted. You're familiar with that phrase? You know, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. But what we have to realize is that's not where God has put us. And so the issue is, what do we need to do on this side of the fence? 
So we need to understand that we are to do the very best for the master, where we are, as who we are. And we need to fight this relentless battle that our flesh continues to fuel, where we're constantly seeking change to be happy. By the way, sometimes change is appropriate, sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's not even possible. Instead, we need to learn to rejoice in where God has stationed us in life for his glory in that particular circumstance and rejoice in the status of life in which he has placed us, knowing that a sovereign God has done this thing for purposes that we may not understand, ultimately for our good and for his glory. Sometimes our assignment is temporary. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's permanent. But either way, what Paul is going to be teaching us here is that we need to be grateful about the bigger issues of life, issues of the heart, be grateful that regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our status, he has chosen us, he has saved us, he has transformed us, he's continuing to conform us into the likeness of Christ, He's continuing to give us opportunities to be used to bring glory to himself. And for this, we need to celebrate. And that needs to be the preoccupation of our heart. And that becomes the key to contentment. Now, Paul states this principle in verse 17. Notice what he says. He says only, or it could be translated nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, And the context here is whether you're single or married or deserted by a spouse or, frankly, in any station of life. As the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. As God has called each, and we should view our lot in life in connection with God's saving call. In other words, God has providentially allotted to us a special assignment at least for a period of time, an assignment that is inextricably linked to our union with Christ. In other words, what he's saying is our station in life is also Christ's station because we are in him and he is in us. We are not alone. He has not abandoned us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So our position in life, our circumstance, our status, whatever it might be, are all part of God's calling upon us. And he says, in this manner, let him walk. And then he adds, and so I direct in all the churches. In other words, I'm not singling you out. I'm telling everybody this. And by the way, this is an extension of the principle that was stated in verse 15, that God has called his people to live in peace. As Christians, we should be content with whatever station in life in which God has placed us according to his sovereign purposes. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to... to swallow the fact and rejoice in the fact that God is sovereign and we are not and that he knows best. Now, he's going to make this exhortation about this principle two more times. Notice in verse 20, he's going to say it again. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, again, this is not to say that change is never appropriate 
that desiring something better is wrong. Certainly if you work in a wicked environment or you work with an evil person or you live with a wicked person uh, or you're in a godless society that's persecuting you uh, or whatever, certainly change can be appropriate there. And, and, and no doubt some of the people in the church there in Corinth were in some of these wicked, wicked scenarios. There's every reason to believe that some of the new converts were formerly temple prostitutes. Others were sex slaves in a concubine marriage. Some were slaves required to find prostitutes for their masters. And so they're, they're involved in all of this type of stuff. So obviously God would have them do everything possible to be freed from those types of social and relational conditions that are inherently evil. But the principle that Paul is, is addressing here has to do with the attitude of the heart. Having a proper attitude given just kind of normal, moral, social, and relational situations that people find themselves in when they come to a saving knowledge of Christ. He's, he's essentially saying be content with that place. Be satisfied to accept your divine assignment. Know that God knows what he's up to here. He is with you, and he's going to strengthen you. He's going to use you. He may change and do something different later on, but this is where you are now. Don't just come to Christ and say, well, I've got to leave that unsaved husband. Don't just come to Christ and, and as a single and feel as though you've got to get married, as many of the Jews were telling people to do. Don't just come to Christ and tell your unsaved spouse, no more sexual relations, as a lot of the Gentiles were telling them to do. Don't just come to Christ and say, you know, I, I really need to become more Jewish or I really need to become more like the Gentiles. And as you're going to see, that was some of the dynamic in that early church. Don't come to Christ and make it your, your crusade to change the government or change society. Now, to help the Corinthian believers and, and all of us to understand these great truths, the apostle chooses the two most controversial and divisive hot-button issues in their culture. Those two issues were circumcision and slavery. Now, before you laugh and say, you can't be serious, let me explain. We must understand that in the early church, circumcision, which was the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles was the greatest religious obstacle of that day. And slavery was the greatest social obstacle of that day. In the Corinthian church, you have both Jews and Gentiles. You have slaves and free men. And some were discontent with their circumstances and with their status in life after they were saved. So they wanted immediate, even demanded immediate change. They, they became obsessed with, with being someone else or, or having something else. Sound familiar? So Paul's first illustration addresses the, the religious and national distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Because we must understand, for Gentiles, circumcision was the mark of a despised people that they hated, the Jews. And for Jews, it was a sign of covenantal blessing. And being uncircumcised was the mark of 
despicable people that God hated. I love the story of David and Goliath. Remember when young David came to the camp and and he sees what's going on. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? I love that story. By the way, we need more men like that, right? We need more men like that that are going to stand up and tell it like it is. Don't get me started on that topic. So verse 18, Paul goes on with this and he says, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Now, let me deal with this topic briefly so we, we understand. Circumcision was the cutting of away of the male foreskin and it was a sign of, of the covenant between Yahweh and the covenant people of Israel. You read about it, for example, in Genesis 17. And it symbolized two very important things. It symbolized the need to cut away sin and the need for cleansing. That's what God had in mind with all of this. Not a cleansing just physically, although historically Jewish women have had the lowest rate of cervical cancer in the world, which is not an issue today with hygiene the way it is today, but it was back then. But it has to do with a spiritual cleansing. It symbolized the need of, 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 of a cleansing of the heart. Because you see, the male organ most clearly represented the depth of human depravity. Because it carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. So therefore, God wants to picture the need for an intense and deep cleansing of the heart. That is necessary to reverse the effects of depravity. A cleansing that is found only in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was the one that fulfilled the covenant. In Genesis 12 and verse 3, we, we read the prophetic promise that through Abraham's seed, all the world should be blessed. And of course, that's true. When we come to faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven and we receive the righteousness of Christ. Romans 4 talks about that in great detail. And we also must understand that at salvation, we undergo a spiritual circumcision. Paul talks about that in Colossians chapter 2. Let me read the text to you, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So what he's saying here is, guys, look. What's really important is not an Old Testament sign that pointed to Christ. That is not the issue. What is important is the miracle of the new birth. What is important is the new creation, the miracle of regeneration, where the Spirit of God raises the spiritually dead to spiritual life, that supernatural instantaneous impartation of spiritual life to spiritual cadavers. 
That's what's important, not circumcision. So he says in verse 19, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. In other words, obedience to, to the, the call of saving grace and, and faithfulness to the Lord is the only thing that really matters here. Not all of this stuff about circumcision and uncircumcision. Verse 20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Now, folks, please, you must understand, this had to have been a real shocker to that congregation, especially for some of the Jewish men who had come to faith in Christ. You see, evidently, some of them wanted to obliterate the Old Testament covenant mark of circumcision by reversing the circumcision surgically. Circumcision was considered to be an embarrassment in the Roman world where men would exercise and bathe in the nude in gymnasiums and bathhouses. That was part of their culture. In fact, the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo stated that in his day, which was late first century, circumcision was, quote, ridiculed by many. And the Jewish historian Josephus stated that several centuries before Christ, when, when Greeks ruled the eastern Mediterranean, he said that some Jewish men were so desperate to be accepted into Greek society and to avoid persecution that they became uncircumcised to hide their identity. So this is the culture here. In fact, in the first century, there was a Roman encyclopedist named Aulus Cornelius Celsus. And he wrote a detailed description of the surgical procedure to become uncircumcised in his work, De Medicina. And as bizarre as that might seem, it was a common practice in that day. In fact, it was even discussed at great length in rabbinic, rabbinic literature. So many Jews were doing this. And Jews who had the procedure done were called epispatics. Uh, that's a name that was derived from the, the Greek term epispaomai. And it, it means to draw over or to pull forward or towards. And, and in fact, this is the very term that Paul uses here for the word uncircumcised. Now, can you imagine the shock on the face of some of these poor guys that had done this? You know, for them to think, you mean to tell me I went through all of that and now you're telling me it doesn't matter? Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing? Now, we also have to remember that some of the Jewish believers, especially the Judaizers, thought just the opposite. And they're telling Gentile believers that, who were uncircumcised to be circumcised. Remember in Acts 15.1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You go to Galatians 5 and you see Paul deals with this at length. Well, think of the poor Gentile guys who had heard all of that, and they went and got circumcised, and now they find out that it, it was, you mean it, it's nothing? You know, there, there had to have been some broken noses after this letter was read in the church, you know. I, I tell you. By the way, this is always the consequence of false doctrine. It confuses people, 
and people will do ridiculous things because they drink the Kool-Aid of whatever person is, is serving it, and then they live to regret it. So again, verse 18, was any man called? In other words, were you, were you saved when, when, when you were circumcised? You don't have to be uncircumcised. Has anyone been called uncircumcision? He, he is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. By extension, what we can say is, is whatever your circumstance, whatever your status in life, be content with that. Be obedient. And this is practical for all of us. I mean, think about it, folks. The Lord has placed each one of us in a particular station and status in life. And what he wants us to do is be fruitful in that situation. He's called us by his grace to be saved, and he's called us to be in that particular situation, that condition. And we need to remember that God is in it. He is always up to something in our life. And unfortunately, too often, we want to seek relief more than blessing. So we always look for a change. I have a hard time being around discontented people because they're always wanting to change something, and typically it's me. (laughs) And sometimes that's probably a good thing. But you get around to those kind of people, maybe I'm describing you, but they're always negative. They're whiners. Something wrong with everything. Always complaining, critical, disgruntled. Usually they're lonely, easily offended, hot-tempered. They seldom share their faith because they're too self-absorbed to be concerned about the lost and too satisfied with life to really love other people sacrificially. They don't find real life in Christ. In fact, even 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 though they might claim to be a believer, they live as if they're an atheist, as if he's not even around. And so they lack the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You just don't see that growing on the vine of their life. You see, beloved, true contentment can only be found when we walk in intimate communion with Christ, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our status in life. Nothing else really matters. I remember the first time I taught seminary in Kenya. These dear men... And a couple of ladies, I think I had 30-something in there um, in my class for several weeks. Some of them had walked for, th- for three weeks to get there. And they had nothing. Some of them didn't have any writing pens. And they were pastors of little churches scattered around there to get more training. And I remember I had just at the end of, before I got ready to leave, I had grabbed a handful of pens. You know how we've got them everywhere in our house. I threw them in my bag. I thought, you know, you never know. And well, I thought, boy, I'm glad I have these pens. So I handed them out. Folks, you would think they won the lottery. It was, it was like Christmas. And here you have these dear people that love Christ, but they have nothing. And they're always laughing They're always rejoicing. They're always singing and praising God, celebrating God's goodness in their life. Other places where I've been, like in Siberia, you have something very very similar. And it reminded me of something one of my favorite Puritan writers wrote, Jeremiah Burroughs. 
He wrote a little book, by the way, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I would recommend it to you. He said this, quote, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Great way of putting it. All right, so what does Paul do next? After he destroys this ridiculous argument between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. Now, mind you, he's got them all upset, right? He's got them. They're, 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 some of them had to be hopping mad by now when they first read this, when they first heard it read. So what does he do now? Well, he goes to the next controversial topic, and that is slavery. Notice verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Now, let me stop here. You've got to realize 50% of the, of the Roman Empire, of the population, were slaves. So this church was filled with people from all over the Roman Empire that were slaves. Had to have been a lot of them in the church. So what does he say? Don't worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, rather do that. Now, we must understand that there were instances of slavery back then where people were mistreated and lived in poverty. But for the most part, the slaves were the most well-educated, most literate, cultured, skilled people in the whole region, beyond the average person. Many were navigators and builders and architects and artists and doctors and teachers and engineers, accountants, and we read about all of this from back then. These were slaves. And Paul is saying, look, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you're automatically going to be freed from slavery. So stay there. It's where God has placed you, at least for now, maybe for the rest of your life. Be content with where God has placed you. Now, it was also possible for slaves to purchase their freedom. Some of them would do that, but it took them a long time to save up that amount of money. What they would do is they would save up their coins and deposit them in the the temple of some god, and then eventually uh, they would bring their master to the temple where the priest would present to the master the amount of money that the slave had had given, and then symbolically the slave would become the property of that particular god and therefore free of all men. And so some of them, no doubt, would, would try to do that. And so, you know, Paul's saying, if you, if you can be freed, that's fine too. But the point is, your circumstances, your status isn't the real issue here. Whether you're a sl- whether you're slave or free, you need to be content and focus on the internal matters of the heart. But notice what Paul adds in his illustration, verse 22. And this is so profound. This must have been so encouraging. It, 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 is, it is to me. I hope it will be to you. He says, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he was called while free. He who was called while free is Christ's slave. So here's the principle of contentment. He's saying here that true freedom is found when we become willing slaves of Christ, regardless of our position in life. That's what really matters. And here we see the glorious paradox of the gospel, do we not? 
Only when we are spiritually bound to Christ, only when he is our master, are we truly free. Not free to sin, but free not to sin. When we come to Christ, we're released from the bondage of our flesh, the bondage of sin, and we're free now not to sin. Sin is no longer our master. We are no longer slaves to sin. On numerous occasions when sharing the gospel, I'm sure you will agree, the response is something like this. Well, you know, religion just isn't for me because I can't handle all of the rules, all of the do's and don'ts. I like my freedom. Have you heard that before? I'm sure you have. Or some variation of that. And I was thinking about this. I, I remember one guy that was sent to me by, by his employer. This was a number of years ago. And um, he, he was in a lot of trouble, a lot of legal trouble. And the boss sent him to me, boss being a Christian. And as I talked with the guy, I found out that he had been married multiple times. I think he was on his fourth wife. And he wasn't living with her. He was living with another woman at the time. He had several grown kids that he couldn't stand. He struggled with depression and alcoholism. And I remember him saying his only friends were his drinking buddies. And as I heard him tell his story, you know, he was typical. I mean, he was the hero of all of his stories. Everybody else was the villain. And, and I asked him, as I often do, you know, t- tell me, what are some of the things in your life that, that really bother you? Oh, my word, it was like lancing a boil, you know. I mean, he went on for about a 15-minute tirade of complaints. Everything from his ex-wives to his no-good-for-nothing kids seemed like some of them were in jail at the time. And he got off on politics. He got off on religion. I couldn't, you know, I just had to sit back. You know, it was like taking a drink from a fire hydrant. It just was coming out. And and I'll never forget, one of his biggest frustrations is that Tennessee hadn't beaten Alabama since 2006. I mean, he was really worked up about that. I mean, it just tells you where the poor guy was living. And, you know, as, 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 I, as I think about all of that, I mean, really? You call your life being free? You call that freedom? I mean, he's an absolute, total bondage to his sin. How sad. So many people, slaves to their lusts, incarcerated in the kingdom of darkness. Satan is their God, and they don't even realize it. Hell is their destiny, and yet they love their freedom. I remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28. He said this, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, that doesn't sound like bondage to me, does it you? There's freedom there. And all of us that know Christ know that. Verse 23, Paul went on to say, you were bought with a price. He's reminding them of the incomprehensible price of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed on their behalf, that Christ purchased them, purchased us for himself, for his glory and our eternal joy. First Peter 1, the end of verse 18, Peter says this, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that, 
You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He's saying, hey, you dear slaves that have come to Christ, quit focusing on trying to be free from your slavery and all of that. Don't become social warriors and fight against slavery. Don't confuse your freedom in Christ for freedom from the various kinds of bondage that are in the world. Focus on your heart and what Christ has done. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. He went on to say, do not become slaves of men. Now, perhaps this refers to the practice of some who would sell themselves into slavery for social or financial benefit. And remember, theirs was an honor-shame-based culture, very different than ours, where there's nothing honorable and there's nothing shameful in our culture anymore. But it was in theirs. And so, therefore, your honor or your shame depended upon your perceived personal worth that was determined by what status you achieved in life and how other people looked upon you. Maybe he's referring to that when he says, don't become slaves of men. Or maybe the phrase speaks of something spiritual, warning against spiritual slavery, not physical slavery. In other words, don't become a slave to the ungodly standards of men in the world. But either way, the point is clear. He's reminding them that, look, guys and gals, you were purchased by God. You belong to him. So celebrate this in your life. Be content with those unfathomable riches of Christ, regardless of your station in life. Bloom where you've been planted, regardless of your social status, even as a slave. Now, might I I add as a footnote, as reprehensible as slavery is, it's interesting that Paul did not condemn it in the situation with the runaway Slave Onesimus in the book of Philemon. Remember that story? You will recall that Paul had led Onesimus to saving faith while he was in prison. And Onesimus' owner was the man named Philemon, who Paul called his, quote, beloved brother and fellow worker. In fact, the church at Colossae met in Philemon's house. So he probably had a very large estate. And in that remarkable story, you may recall that Paul asked Philemon to forgive Onesimus for running away from him and accept him back because he's your brother in Christ. And what's interesting is Paul never asked Philemon to free him or make him his social equal because now they are, I mean, they're, they're equal in the eyes of God as brothers in Christ. And instead, what Paul did is use slavery as an analogy for the way believers should be in relationship to God who has purchased us and to rejoice in the privilege of joyfully loving a gracious and good master. And so that's the same idea that we see here. So Paul closes this section by saying to all the believers, not just the slave brethren, Each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. 
Remain with God, a phrase that means um, abide with God or alongside of or in the presence of God. Remain with him. Whatever your lot in life, whatever your station. Whatever your position in life, whatever your predicament, walk with him. Hebrews 5, I'm sorry, Hebrews 13, verse 5 speaks to this. There we read, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content, there's the word, with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Wonderful passage that addresses this issue. John MacArthur said this, God allows us to be where we are and stay where we are for a purpose. Conversion is not the signal for a person to leave his social condition, his marriage or his singleness, his human master or his other circumstances. Instead, we are to leave sin and anything that encourages sin. But otherwise, we are to stay where we are until God moves us. Now, I want to close this morning with some words of of exhortation and encouragement. Hopefully, they will both go together and minister to you. Obviously, folks, I'm I'm telling you from the word here, we need to understand that we we must guard ourselves against discontentment. All right? And isn't it interesting? The advertising world does everything it can to make you discontent. I, I love it. They change the styles on the cars just a little bit every year so that yours is now obsolete. There's always the new version of iPhone. There's always new clothes that you've got to wear. You know, the, I remember when the ties were big, then they got skinny, and I don't know where it is. Now, I don't even care. Isn't it funny? Once you get older, you don't care. And so, um, so they're always trying to change everything. The hairstyles all change and, and so forth. Don't get me started on that one either. But what we have is, especially in our culture, is the more we have, the more we, well, I mean, we're just never satisfied. You know, I get mad when my computer takes 10 seconds to load. I mean, what's wrong with this stupid thing? You know what I mean? So we got to get, you know, faster internet or whatever. You, you get the idea. And all of that stuff distracts us, dear friends, from what should be important. It distracts us from what we have in Christ. First Timothy chapter one, beginning at verse six, Paul says, but godliness is actually, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. They go together. Godliness, by the way, can be translated piety, reverence, a likeness to God, He goes on to say, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And the point is, none of those things really matter. God's going to take care of us. What really matters is our heart. Charles Hodge, great theologian, said this, quote, Contentment is as a Christian grace, one of the fruits of the Spirit. Nothing short of his power can so mortify our natural desire for enjoyment and preeminence as to make us cheerfully to acquiesce in being poor, suffering of little account and of little esteem. 
He went on to say, remember that it is our own Lord and Savior who is the God of providence who determines the bounds of our habitation. Contentment arises out of the conviction that not only our good, but God's glory is most promoted by our lot being what it is. Amazing quote. Dear Christian, when you find yourself plagued with discontentment, remember this, what is really important is the attitude of your heart. Not changing something externally, but changing something in your heart. Before God called me into pastoral ministry, I worked as a biblical counselor and consultant with especially Christian organizations. And I worked primarily with what we would call the up and out, not the down and out. Most of the people I worked with would make more in a day, certainly in a week, than I would make all year. Famous recording artists executives, especially in the Christian music industry, pro athletes, doctors, lawyers, investment bankers, business owners, and those types of things. And you know what was fascinating? I worked with these people for about 10 years. And one of the, one of the threads of commonality with all of them is that they were absolutely miserable. They were discontent with their station in life. Why is that? A lack of godliness. They were focused on all of the wrong things. They were trying to find life in material things rather than in an intimate relationship with the lover of their souls. Many of them didn't even know Christ. They were focused on the things of the world. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that the things that are seen are temporal. But the things that are not seen are eternal. Everything that we can see here is going to pass away. The things we can't see are eternal. That's what we need to focus on. I would ask you, how many truly contented people do you know? Hopefully you are. But the answer typically is not too many. And far too often as Christians, we grumble and complain about our job, our family, our spouse. If we could only change this or that, oh my, the country's falling apart. The socialists and communists are taking over. Yeah, they probably are. But you know what? God, you're, you're into all of that. What I need to worry about is my heart. How am I going to honor you in the midst of this decaying culture? If only these things would change, then my life would be great. You know, folks, all can be well, regardless of circumstances, when we are committed to a personal holiness, when we are walking with Christ, when we are in close fellowship with the one who has saved us by his grace. It is then in the midst of even the most violent storm that we find joy, soul satisfying joy. That only comes from the presence of God. Paul's talked about this in Philippians 4, beginning in verse 11. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He says, I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering. And here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's where you find contentment. 
Scripture's filled with paradoxes, right? The first will be what? The first will be last. The last will be first. If you want to gain your life, you've got to be willing to lose it or give it, right? We can only find freedom in Christ when we become a willing slave of Christ, and on and on it goes. Let me give you another one that emerges from many passages of Scripture that fits into this principle well. Dear friends, the, the key to being content with your condition in your life is to become discontent with the condition of your heart. If you want to lighten the burden of your afflictions, you need to increase the burden of your heart regarding your sin. Again, Jeremiah Burroughs put it this way, quote, a Christian comes to contentment not so much by getting rid of the burden that is on him as by adding another burden to himself. Let me explain this, and hopefully you will see this. Beloved, the more burdened we are over our sin, the less burdened we will be over our sorrows. I know many of you are carrying some heavy loads today. Some of you are in some really bad marriages. Some of you aren't married and you wish you were. Some of you are are depressed. Some of you are struggling with financial issues. Some of you have jobs that you absolutely hate. And on and on it goes. Some of you have diseases, physical problems. You know, these things can weigh us down with sorrow and they can cause us to focus on relief at all costs. And there's some legitimacy to that. But dear friends, if in the midst of your pain, you will once again examine your own heart and say, Lord, yes, all of these things that I'm dealing with, they're they're overwhelming, they're terrible, I wish they could change. And I am discontent with this, but I am content with the reality that you've placed me here. I don't understand all of the reasons. I wouldn't be able to understand it if you were to tell me. But I know this, that in the midst of all of this, I need to focus on my heart, those areas in my life where I am not walking by the Spirit, where I am not putting to death the deeds of the flesh, where I am not being a living and a holy sacrifice. Those areas in my life where I am not living as I should and therefore forfeiting blessings in my life. And as I focus on those things and my heart becomes burdened over those issues, everything else is just secondary or tertiary. That's the point. And then in the midst of all of that, what happens? We celebrate God's grace, right? It's not like we just look at our sin and we're, oh, my, oh, there's another one. No, that's not what I'm saying. But you look at it and you say, oh, God, I want, to do, I, I want to do better. I want to apply your word here. I want to change this because these are things you would ask me to do so that I can enjoy your blessing. But, Lord, as I look at all of this, I say, oh, thank you for your grace. Thank you that there's no condemnation in Christ. Thank you that I can sing from the bottom of my heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. Yes, but pastor, you just don't know how hard it is to be married to my husband or my wife. No, and I'm sure it's a difficult thing, but may I encourage you 
to let your focus be on your heart, your walk with Christ. Let that be the preoccupation of your heart. Even be able to say to him, Lord, I don't know why I'm in this terrible situation, but I know that for whatever reason, I am here. You are sovereign. I am going to trust you. And I'm not going to focus on all of this. I'm going to focus on all of this. And therein you find contentment. Because the Spirit of God then blesses us in ways that we can't even imagine. And it's in that context that we can sing the great lyrics of Isaac Watts' hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the eternal truths that we have just immersed ourselves in. I pray as always that by your Spirit's power, you would help us not only to understand them in context of the first century, but in the context of the 21st century, that you would help us apply these things to our lives because certainly we all need it. We are all prone to discontentment. We are all prone to focus on externals rather than internals. And when we do that, we rob ourselves of the joy, the surpassing value, the greatness and glory of knowing Christ Jesus and enjoying all of the blessings that are ours in him that satisfies our soul to a point where we don't even think of the external difficulties in which we may be found. So I pray that you will help us apply these truths. And finally, I pray for those that may not know you as Savior. Oh, God, how I ask that you will make them miserable and help them to see just the horror of the consequences of sin, that they have violated the law of a holy God, but by your grace you have made provision for them to be reconciled unto you through faith in your Son, who gave his life as a substitute for sinners. May today be the day that they experience the new birth, the miracle, of being born again. Dismiss us now with these great truths resonating within our heart and bless our time together as we fellowship and as we eat a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner. May all that we do in the time to follow be encouraging to each one of us and certainly be glorifying to you. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.